0: Welcome to This Academic Life, episode 33. This episode is sponsored by Degrider and his portfolio in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. For students and researchers in mathematics, DeGreiter's 2022 catalog is now available at thisacademiclife.org. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Hi, my name is Kim Michelle Lewis. I'm a Professor of Physics and Associate Dean of Research. Hi, my name is Lucy Zhang. I'm a Professor of Mechanical Engineering.
1: Hi, my name is Pania Newell. I'm also a Professor of Mechanical Engineering. Today, we have Professor David Schulter, an assistant professor of the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry, and a former senior editor of Nature Reviews Chemistry, talking to us about his non-traditional path to a tenure track position. I met David a couple of years ago at the Nature Workshop. Since then, I've been picking his brain for various technical papers submitted to high-impact journals. So I thought it would be good to have him on the show to first hear about his recent move to the States and also get some answers to my never-ending questions related to publishing high-quality papers, which I believe it would be of interest to our audiences too. David, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, hello, everyone, Panya, Kim and Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm speaking to you from Texas, which is now my home, although and some people call it the south. But of course, I'm from the, the real deep south, which is Australia.
1: Wow, wonderful. So maybe since you started introducing yourself, it would be good that if you can briefly also talk about your academic journey.
2: Great. Yeah, thanks, Panya. So I'm originally actually from Switzerland, which is where I was when I was a child. But yeah, I grew up in Australia, which is where I did my school and then also my undergraduate, as well as postgraduate studies. So I was there at the University of Sydney, which is a traditional like flagship big public university. And I started off in my freshman year, I was doing an engineering chemistry double major. I ended up actually just choosing chemistry in particular inorganic synthesis, which is where you literally make molecules. Inorganic molecules are ones that contain metal and you're literally there in the lab mixing solutions of metal compounds to get new compounds, right? Ones that have never been made before and then you'd be studying these. And so I continued that kind of theme into my PhD where I was looking at large metal complexes that could potentially encircle the double helix of DNA. So I think chemistry has always fascinated me, and probably contrary to what the average person off the street would tell you, it's actually quite a lot of scope for creativity in chemistry. Because when you think of it, there's infinite arrangements of atoms, and they haven't been made. And this is particularly the case for inorganic chemistry, because there's not many rules governing structure. Anyway, so probably at the end of undergraduate and the start of graduate studies, I kind of had decided that I want to remain in academia. And Australian academic scene is not as large as certainly not the US. There's 20 million people. So even though I think the Australian education is very good, I think in general, if you want to take the academic path, you kind of earn your stripes by doing some studies overseas, either for a PhD or postdoctoral kind of training. And so I just spun the globe and (laughs) pointed, and I ended up in uh, Illinois. So I, I guess in general, you might imagine that it's typical that one would go to North America or to Europe. These are the typical places that like uh, graduate students from Australia who are interested in academia would go. And so I ended up in University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, which, as some of you will know, it's like a small college town, but um, quite a reputable university, particularly for chemistry. Anyway, following my time there it was about five years, also a nice mixture of lecturing as well as research, which I think was kind of good for me. I went to Korea for a couple of years and that was possibly due to personal reasons. And the research I did there was on graphene, which some of you will know is like a single sheet of carbon. And that is kind of an important material in terms of electronics and also catalysis. So very different tack to what I was used to, of course, molecules with metals in them. This was just no metals at all, just a buttload of carbon. But yeah, so that's what I did before. I moved to my role in publishing, which saw me move to London. So again, that's another continent that I decided to go to. And I was in Springer Nature for five years. And since about six months, I've been on the faculty at Texas State University. And as Panya mentioned, I'm in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. And I'm following, again, my research theme of making molecules that mimic enzymes. Yeah, so that's where we are today.
3: That's great. That is uh, non-traditional for sure. So you mentioned that you got recruited to the publishing. So how did you get recruited to this editorial position that you were at that one point? As if through invitation or how did it all work out?
2: Yeah, so I was in Korea at the time, and I don't think the job was probably personally very satisfying to me, and there were also sort of relationship reasons why it really wasn't working. And without really going into that, I was actually just in on the lookout just for any job to be honest, and probably would have preferred a research job because clearly that's what i like to and i would clearly sacrificed a lot to continue on that research path going to different countries at that point i was just looking for any job and i literally just went to nature.com careers and these jobs in editorial are advertised much like many other jobs are it's all very transparent and yeah i mean the company is obliged to have the ad on the the website for a certain amount of time so there's no like secret handshakes or anything so The advertisements are pretty common, and particularly in the past few years, because as you can guess, because of the growth in research output, including from Asia, particularly China, this has to be met with a commensurate growth in the number of journal pages that are published. So as you can probably expect, not only more journals popping up, but also the existing journals might be hiring new people. So the term of employment is usually stated on any ad. So very often, in fact, probably most often, the jobs are permanent. So they're continuing jobs because journals typically don't go bust. At least the journals uh, at Springer Nature were as part of. So you'd join the journal and after a three to six month probation period, uh, it's a continuing position. Other times, however, a position will be advertised as being temporary or locum. And locum positions are sort of limited roles to cover someone else who, for example, an editor has gone on secondment or they're on parental leave, for example. And then in that case... Uh, you'd have a temporary position. But very often, those positions can lead to permanent roles in other journals. As you know, once you get a foot in the door, if you're in a part of a big company, one way or another, they'll find a role for you, perhaps in a different team. But it's often a good opportunity, even though it is limited.
3: That's interesting. So I'm also associate editor for several different journals. And of course, we do it as a side job, so that kind of as part of our CV building, we participate in these uh, services. So for you at that position, it was not a service per se, right? It, because it's not like you do it on the side. That was a f- full-time job.
2: Yeah, so I should really mention that there's a real difference between, say, professional editor and an academic editor. and both of the people do service to the community so i think i should really point out that both people do service and of course there's differences between journals that are part of societies so the american chemical society for example and then journals that are owned by publishing companies many of which are for profit okay both of those systems can have good content and very objective work but they are different in a sense that you're and you're right some have academic editors and many of those academic editors are particularly experts in the field that they cover for that journal. And very often professional editors have to cover arguably more diverse fields. So yeah, it's different ways to achieve the the same thing in a sense. I see. Okay. I I think both models have advantages. I think it's fair to say that the journals that are headed by academic staff, I mean, oftentimes they just probably have more subject matter knowledge, particularly in very specific fields, while an academic editor will have that, a professional editor can't possibly have that specific knowledge because they're covering broader material. And the point in favour of the sort of professional editors is that those companies aren't affiliated to any universities or are they affiliated to any societies or countries. So in principle, they would give arguably a more sort of unbiased view of articles.
3: That's great. The typical process that I know of, so typically the submission comes in, the chief editor goes through, filter out, say half of them. And the remaining half, if they are worthy of being reviewed further then they send it to associate editors, then associate editor do one more pass. And then if the associate editors think that it's worthy of being sent out for review, then eventually we do and collect the reviews and then get the feedback, whether it's a reject or a revision or whatever it is. Is that the same for the Nature Journal?
2: Yeah, so I was working at Nature Reviews Chemistry, which is probably typical of many of the journals in uh, Springer Nature because of course we run by professional editors, we kind of do that full time, so the editors are actually making the initial decision themselves. Depends on which journal you'll consider working at, but typically if you work at say a research journal, you know, every day you're getting some articles and maybe in the afternoon the journal will meet and then the chief editor will actually divide them up. So the chief editor in that case will not Make the initial like rejection, I mean unless it's clearly just like in gibberish, right, but in general, the chief editor will actually just dish out the articles according to the subject matter knowledge of the editors and the associate and senior editors in the team
1: so David, can you tell us a little bit about in that position, what did you learn, and what were some of the challenges and opportunities that helped you to grow as a researcher?
2: Oh thanks, Panya, actually, if I can just add something to the previous question. So you asked about the typical process for submitting. I should probably point out that sometimes there's something that happens before submitting. And some people might, for example, approach an editor and ask, would this, for example, manuscript be of interest to you? And these are so-called the informal pre-submission inquiries. And this is often useful. It can save everyone a bit of time if you just showed them initially what you've got, because maybe it's just completely out of scope and it's not worth um, the time even putting it formally through the system. While some editors will appreciate these, like some editors do not, because as you can probably guess, journal editors have metrics and workload kind of quotas that they need to work up to. And of course, these informal sort of pre-submission inquiries don't contribute towards those quotas because the quotas will come through formal submission. And if you're taking up a lot of time of someone based on these informal like emails and, you know, read my manuscript, then they're not really getting credit for that. Anyway, in response to your question about challenges and opportunities, well, I think the role of editor has its ups and downs and maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm not there anymore. But it's not all positive or negative, but it, it is interesting and it depends on what sort of personality you have. So in terms of things that I learned, I think I learned a lot about the different subdisciplines of chemistry. So my undergraduate and PhD studies were in inorganic chemistry. And suddenly, I was part of a team of just three people, three editors, who had to look at submissions from all of chemistry. So that's kind of a vast subject area. So the fact that we only had three editors meant that I had to sometimes actually rather often deal with manuscripts that really well out of my speciality. And so that, that was a big challenge. I think I learned a lot about stuff. And in some ways, you become a jack of all trades, but I think it was certainly opening my eyes and kind of it allowed me to put my work in a broader context. What I also found was that there's really a broad distribution of writing ability among top scientists. So, I mean, there's no doubt that a lot of the top scientists are very good in terms of the research, but I think some of them are better able to articulate their ideas more clearly than others. And this can often make the difference between two otherwise like very comparable researchers. So I think it's very important to not only do your research well and carefully, but also present it and present it to the audience by thinking about them, by having empathy for them. Like, what would they understand? What would they be interested in? So I think in general, you should write for someone else, not write for yourself. What I also learned, and probably something that is leading to me being here rather than in that role, is that I have a curiosity, and I think as researchers, all of us do, And that research curiosity could only be satisfied by doing research rather than writing about it or by helping others publish their research. Those are all noble pursuits and necessary. But for me, I'm the kind of person who might wake up at three o'clock in the morning, have some idea, write it down in my diary because I don't want to forget it and then go back to sleep. And if that's the sort of person that you are, then I don't think the editorial role would be probably that satisfying. Yeah, in terms of challenges, well, as you can probably guess, you're going to be dealing with a lot of egos from the professors who submit to your journal and this is typical of academia i'll get lots of emails from people telling me how to do my job also because i was working as part of a very large company it's hard to change a very rigid corporate structure and workflow because there's many separate journals within this company they kind of often have a one size fits all type of attitude so with this kind of stability as being part of this big corporate sort of machine you also lose agility And also in the editorial role, I think that career progression is somewhat limited. I think in general, you might come in as associate editor. And then after a couple of years, you might get senior editor, which is really just a pay raise and nothing else. And then, of course, at the top of that little pyramid of your journal, you'll have a chief editor. And of course, those roles will be limited. Either a new journal opens or a chief editor moves. But apart from that, there's really not too many options. And then, of course, past there, the roles are just shall we say, administrative. And I mean, it's similar at a university. It just means like you're moving further away from research and academia and more in terms of management. And that's, some people might really get into that, but it's not everyone's cup of tea, I guess. In terms of opportunities, you really have the opportunity to shape a field, particularly at Nature Reviews Chemistry, because I'd say the majority of articles came by invitation. So if you're at a research journal, you're really at the mercy of the manuscripts that get submitted to you. Of course, you can choose to some extent, what gets published. But of course, largely that is the role of the reviewers. But when you're working at, say, a reviews journal, where it's mostly by invitation, you can really shape a field and you can conduct kind of maybe gentle affirmative action. In general, I think a lot of our listeners might be from America, but please understand that the rest of the world doesn't really share the same fondness towards affirmative action. You can also organize conferences at Nature and you can invite all your favorite plenary speakers. And oftentimes they Come, which is very nice and you can improve scientific practices as you might know several journals are instituting when you submit to them you you have to have a checklist of all the data that's necessary and it just makes you become a more careful researcher and it means that the readers can trust what they're reading
1: Interesting, I didn't know that you can organize conferences as part of nature, but uh, also it was interesting that you said that through those review articles, they are kind of shaping the field. So do you think that you gain some knowledge of your field is going by being a former editor, as well as do you think that overall your experience helped you to become a better writer as a faculty?
2: Yeah, so prior to working at Nature, I think I was already a reasonable writer. I mean, let's be honest, like physics, chemistry, math, they were my best subjects in high school, <laughs> certainly not English. But I think I could well, I think at the time I could write clearly and fairly succinctly. But I remember my advisor always telling me that I had this very terse writing style. You know the style where you have just factoids, every single sentence like brackets, this many units, blah blah blah. And it was kind of probably very tough to read. I was probably proud of it at the time, but everyone else was probably like, oh man. I mean, you got all the data there, but it's just, it's it's not really that nice to read. So I think the more that I worked at Nature and the more I read, the more I realized you really have to write for the reader. It's not a selfish thing. If you want to be self-indulgent, go write a blog or a diary, but you're writing an article for it to be read. And I think that's very important. And so it's helped me write more clearly and for a broader audience. Whereas I think in the past, particularly if you're a researcher, and particularly because I'd done like a five-year postdoc in Illinois and then two years in Korea, if you're really focused, sometimes you get a bit of tunnel of vision and you can oftentimes maybe not put something in a broader context or maybe something that you have obsessed about for, you know, half a year. Maybe it's really not that important, right? Even though it might be so important to you, maybe it's really the wrong way to go. But anyway, there are ways that you can write for experts and newbies at the same time. So you can make it inclusive without dumbing it down. And that's a real skill. And it's one that I try to encourage among the authors of nature, use chemistry, but also one that I hopefully I've picked up at least a tiny bit for myself. I mean, it's really all about taking a step back and putting things in a broader context. And this is often a good way of being able to write such that you might submit to a broader interest journal, which these so-called sort of high impact factor journals, journals that are read by more people.
0: So, David, what are your personal thoughts on publishing in high-impact journals, and how important do you think it is for planning for a successful career?
2: Yeah, first, I should clarify how we're viewing high-impact. So, (laughs) I suspect that what you probably mean is that you're referring to journals that have high citations per article, and this is usually reflected in values like the journal impact factor or cite score, which refer to citations within, say, the first two years of publication. So this is oftentimes favoring the more kind of hip kind of research and the more applied research, the sort of research that people will apply and use in the next two to three years. It's also an average of the journal over all the articles published. So it's skewed quite a bit from the median by possibly a few articles that go viral. And that's kind of the age that we live in. So I wonder, first of all, if you compare different journals, certainly one might have a higher journal impact factor. But if you look at the median values, I wonder if there's a big difference. Anyway, I'm not really one to like stats, so I'm not gonna talk about those anymore. But if I understand you correctly, and and you're talking about the general interest journals, the the ones often have higher standards and lower rates of acceptance, for sure. I mean, are there commonly tenure guidelines that require a certain number of publications in these journals with a certain impact factor? You bet. All around the world. I've been to Korea, I've been here. Yeah, it's not nice that you get reduced down to a number, but it's often the way for people to judge you. And often those people just don't have the time or the expertise to judge you in any other way. And that's a separate issue in itself. Certainly for my annual review, articles in journals that are above a certain journal impact factor are worth more points than articles in journals with an impact factor that's lower than that amount. In general, I think the the impact factor is a way for non-experts or those without time to put a metric on someone's productivity. Um, But in the end, I guess the proof is in the pudding. you really got to read the articles and see if they're any good. So I think that's really the most important thing. If you're lazy, you'll just look at the citations and you probably won't even read the articles. And you're like, oh, this is an article in that journal. It's worth a certain number of points. But I think hopefully we're in a time when we can go a bit beyond that and exercise a bit of sort of independent justification. And yeah. Anyway, I think overall, it's important to get your stuff read. That's the most important thing. It just happens that, as you know, that the journals that are so-called high impact are often the ones that more people read. But I think it's really most important to get your stuff read by people, particularly those in your field, because these are the people that will be reviewing your grant proposals and your work.
1: That was an interesting point, David. I have a colleague that she published in a very uh, high impact journal. But unfortunately, she hasn't collected that many citations, so I guess she didn't target the right audience for her work, even though her work is, it's been really, really good. It's a new field of study, but I guess it wasn't published in the right place, so I like your comment on making sure that you get, I guess, good readers.
2: Sorry, just another very small point is that just because something is getting a lot of citations doesn't mean it's getting it for the right reasons. I mean, there are some people who would say any news is good news, but certainly in science, like you'd want it cited for the right reasons as well.
0: Yes. Yeah, so often for junior faculty members, it is a struggle. They're thinking about promotion and tenure, and they believe they should be evaluated based on their the quality of their work. But they often struggle on the fact that they also need to publish in these high impact journals so you gave us your philosophy that you think you should publish in those journals where people are going to read them is there any other tip for junior faculty in terms of battling that stress and anxiety of high impact versus the right target audience do you think they should just not worry about it and go with the the best scholarship and the fit for their research versus, do you really lean all the way over and say, don't worry about the high impact factor, or you think that's too extreme?
2: In terms of advice for junior faculty, I think, like I said, publish in journals that people read and the people who are in your community, the people who are making decisions in terms of publications and grants. For me, there are chemistry journals and then there are sub-disciplines like inorganic chemistry. And it's fair to say that the inorganic chemistry journals uh, have a smaller impact factor by usually about half or a third they're still just as respected in terms of uh, the robustness of the research. So I think as long as the journals have high bars in terms of how good the data have to be, then I think those are respectable. I think for me, when I was an editor and still as an academic, I remember more carefully crafted paper that's beautifully written. I remember that more than a flashy study that's published in a so-called higher impact journal. I think what's important for junior faculty to realize, particularly because they might not have had as many interactions with editors as more established professors, is that you have to realize that people are behind every editorial decision. It's not a robot that's rejecting or accepting things, despite the rather mechanical look of some of the emails that you receive from journals. There are templates and people do lean on those. In any case, I think it's important to have some kind of empathy for these editors think of the type of workload they are under and think of the breadth of chemistry or any other subject that they have to encounter every single day so if you see a journal editor at a conference I mean you remember those things right where you meet people in real life have a chat with them and they'll remember you and publishing it's a symbiotic relationship between editors and authors so if from an early career stage you can build on that relationship including offering to peer-review manuscripts and doing a thorough job then that will see that relationship go both ways. And oftentimes, if you, for example, get a very useful referee report from a young academic, you're like, hmm, maybe this is the kind of person that I'd like to write for me. And likewise, if you have, say, a bad experience, say one of your manuscripts get rejected, instead of your blood boiling and suddenly you wanna send hate mail to people, Maybe instead of criticizing other people, how inept they are, you know, how stupid is that editor? They didn't didn't know the significance of my work. They couldn't appreciate my genius idea. Well, maybe before you do that, maybe you should consider how you might have better conveyed the broad implications of your work more clearly, because sometimes you just got to spell things out. And another thing with junior faculty is, and oftentimes I've had this question, is that, is it important to have certain illustrious co-authors? Because oftentimes junior faculty will enlist high-profile co-authors to solely add apparent authority to the message in a paper they submit. I would avoid adding authors for these political reasons. If you don't have the expertise to cover a subject thoroughly, then for sure. But otherwise, I would simply just include the names of those who contributed to the work. Yeah, and with regards to the co-author question, for probably... Not really for good reasons, there's often the perception that if you have a bunch of authors and you're a junior faculty and there's a senior person, there's the perception that, oh you didn't have the academic leadership, it wasn't your idea as well, which of course isn't the case. And as some of you will know, some journals are now having the kind of author contribution section at the end where you can perhaps in a more detailed fashion say who did what. And that's, I think, contributing in some way to stamping out these kind of token authorships, which certainly at my old company we frowned upon because Obviously, in certain cases, for political reasons, people are going on articles that they really shouldn't be on.
0: What strategies do you think journals can implement to be more inclusive and diverse in terms of the authorship?
2: Yeah, so I think it's important that journals and journal editors have enough time to do this because it does take time to do well. It takes time to identify promising authors, oftentimes in the physical sciences, which is what I was working in. There'll be prominent people from underrepresented groups and they're called upon to do all the guest articles and all of the service work. And as you know, they'll be the token person on a panel. They'll be working on certain committees and is a group of authors or a panel diverse if it's the same people from the underrepresented groups that are called upon every single year to do the same thing? Not really. It's the same person and it doesn't matter what field you're in. I bet all of you know such a person and this person is the diversity poster child. And it doesn't matter, though, how much exposure this poster child gets. And certainly they can help from being a role model. But certainly, in the end, it's just one person. And the minority will remain the minority as long as this one person is boosted up while the rest of the minority is really ignored. Because those are the voices that really need to be heard. The other person really didn't need any help in their voice being heard. So I think it's important that editors put in work to find the people whose voices are more in need of being heard. So we also have to put work into the diversity of ideas. If people of different races or gender identities or creeds all graduate from the same research group, then they might seem different on the surface, but their academic ideas might not be. So we really need to pay attention to diversity of ideas as well. For example, I think the US chemistry scene is huge. But the academic genealogy at the top level is quite homogeneous, as you might suspect. Um, In terms of inclusivity at Nature Reviews Chemistry, we spend a lot of our time editing articles for content and clarity. And this allows the voices of, say, non-native English speakers to be heard more clearly and to be heard more clearly to non-native English readers, of course. And it was important for us because we would mostly operate by invitation to invite the opinions of those who disagree with certain articles. So you get balanced content in terms of ideas. And I also spent a lot of time to find good co-authors from emerging research nations. I invited some people from Ukraine, for example, and also inviting people from less prominent institutions. Otherwise, as you might suspect, it might only be a handful of universities that are represented in the pages of a journal, and that's not good. I found that to be well worth the investment. So I think in summary, if editors, put more effort into identifying the voices that need to be heard, then this is useful. If the journals don't put in the effort and just Google the first hit that comes up, the person with the most number of papers, then you're going to be looking at having a token minority or some kind of poster child. And they also won't feel that you're being very genuine as well. Because remember, this is just one person and you might promote one person, but they're still going to be part of a community that's a minority.
1: Thank you so much, David, for sharing your experiences as a past editor and the impact that has had in your career today as a professor of chemistry. I hope our listeners have enjoyed our conversations and those who have been thinking about taking a non-traditional path to academia are all inspired by your story.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. This episode is sponsored by Degrider and its portfolio in science, technology, engineering and mathematics. For students and researchers in mathematics, Degrider's 2022 catalog is now available at thisacademiclife.org. You can follow us on Facebook and listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music or Google Podcasts. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life.